0: Continuing on from last week and from many, many weeks prior to that, we are considering um, the law of God, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments uh, from creation to consummation. So we'll be on this series of sermons for quite some time. Uh, How do the Ten Commandments function? Was there any function of the Ten Commandments Uh, in the garden prior to the fall into sin, I argued there was. Was there any function of the Ten Commandments after the fall into sin before what we call the formal or public uh, promulgation of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai written on stone tablets by the finger of God by divine power executing, it's uh, in execution, terminating on those stones and etching the ten words out. Was there a function after the fall into sin up until that time? And I argued yes. You remember several sermons ago I said, we are kind of instinctually trained to judge the good and bad conduct of the saints or ain'ts, from the fall into sin, Genesis 3, all the way to Exodus 19, we are in, we instinctively use a litmus, namely the Ten Commandments. I think we're right to do so. We also looked at the unique place, the uh, central place, in one sense, of the Ten Commandments under the old or Mosaic covenant, and then we looked at Old Testament prophecy. We looked at Jeremiah and Ezekiel because they foresee a day in which this law is written on hearts um, under this new, what we call the new covenant, which ends up being inaugurated by our Lord himself. So our Lord's people have a law work on their heart, and of course the next question is, Uh, what's that law? And I sought to answer it. But what does that look like in our lives? So having looked at the prophets, Ezekiel, or Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and we looked elsewhere because some people have a problem with those texts because if you read them, Jeremiah 31 promises this new covenant to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So some people want to read that literalistically and say, oh, this is the promised new covenant only and exclusively for Jews. You realize within our life, some of our lifetimes, uh, People publish books with that, and they said, "Well, what the Christians live under is a is an unknown new covenant, not spoken about in the Old Testament." So there are two new covenants: one for people are nodding their head, no; one for Jews, one for Gentiles how when you read the new testament it doesn't read that way it uses the phrase new covenant and everlasting covenant which is a synonym for it both of them used in the old testament and it uses it in books that apply to gentiles one of the books is second corinthians chapter 3 and that's where we're going to be today i introduced this passage last week and i'd like to dig a little deeper into it because i think it's uh, it's a it's a great example of the fulfillment of that which the prophets said would take place, namely, after the incarnation and sufferings and glory of Christ, uh, the grace of God would come to both Jews and Greeks, would alter their hearts, would change them. Uh, God would write his law on their hearts. He would forgive them of their sins. These people would know God savingly. He would give them the spirit who would then cause them to walk in the statutes. That's the language of Jeremiah and Ezekiel put together. So we have the promise of this, and then we have the fulfillment in the New Testament, as uh, stated here in 2 Corinthians 3. We have the fulfillment of it in many, many places. I argued that Jeremiah's phrase, my law, refers to that which... uh was written on stone tablets, and he's saying will be written on fleshly tablets or tablets of the heart. So the work of regeneration, the work of divine grace coming to us, alters and changes us. It makes us sensitive to this law, uh, which is in a different Technical term called the Decalogue, which all, all all that means is ten deca, and then logos word ten words, the Ten Commandments. On the way here, I was telling my wife this, and I could hear somebody pushing back, going, "Well, I'm not sensitive to the fourth commandment because of those texts in the New Testament." And uh, my comeback to that is, "Then why are you at church?" I think we don't realize we are sensitive to the Fourth Commandment because we don't work 24-7. We realize as creatures, I must uh, stop working at sometimes and rest. We also realize as creatures, if we're Christians, I've got to go to public worship. And it just so happens that 99.9% of uh, Christian churches, or whatever the, the percentage is— um, excluding the church that owns this building, meet on Sunday, the first day of the week. Why is that? Uh, It's the first day of the new creation, but we'll get there at some point. So some people say, well, I'm not sensitive to that command. Well, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, okay? No sin uh, is to be in the Christian church in violation of that commandment. What did Paul have to do in 1 Corinthians? He had to address the entire church allowing a violation of the seventh commandment that was, I think he said, even worse than the Gentiles do. A man had his father's wife, seems to be stepmother, and they were putting up with it. So we could say, well, they weren't sensitive to the commandment. Therefore, they're not responsible to obey the command. No, they were in violation of it. But they were still believers. He, he treated the Corinthians as a Christian church. Um, On to the notes. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The verse that I think is especially important in our consideration is verse 3. And I'll read it, and then I'm going to put it in context. And it says this, Clearly, you, you people, you Corinthians, are an epistle of Christ. Uh, Epistle means letter. You're a letter of Christ. Ministered by us, written, not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Now, this section actually begins in verse 17 of chapter 2. Look at that verse. It says, For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So what Paul is having to do here, unfortunately, is to set himself up against um, false prophets, false apostles, false teachers. So this is... Paul having to uh, argue for the validity of his own ministry. Now, for us, that's weird, okay? Because Paul's probably most people's favorite apostle because he wrote more letters than uh, any other apostle. Uh, But for the Corinthians, they started to have problems with Paul. So Paul has to address the problems in both letters, and this one in particular, the validity of his ministry. Now, look at verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves... So he's asking a question, or do we need as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? What's the answer to that? The answer is well, no. Then watch verse two. He's going to use a metaphor depicting the Corinthians themselves as a letter written on his heart. You are our epistle. This is a metaphor. Uh, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. In other words, uh, we love you. Um, You're in our hearts. When you say to somebody, you're in my heart, um, you're using a metaphor, a figure of speech. You're saying uh, that you desire their well-being, something like that, that you, you pursue the good for them and on their behalf. And then in verse three, he uses a similar metaphor for a different purpose. Watch what he does now. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. It's not a physical letter, right? Like we have here. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. Then he kind of one ups this metaphor of epistle. You're actually an epistle, you're an of Christ epistle. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus wrote a letter and Paul has it and he's showing them a physically written epistle by Jesus, but he still calls them an epistle uh, and an of Christ epistle ministered by us. Now, that's interesting as well. Paul is the servant of, this, uh, of Christ, He's the minister of the gospel, so he ministers to these people. He serves them something, and through that, that is how they became an of Christ epistle, written, not with ink, so it's not a physical letter, but here it is, by the spirit of the living God. Okay, so now what we're doing is Paul saying, I'm talking about something that's done not external to you, but internal to you to you by God himself, not on tablets of stone. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about the tablets of the flesh that is of the heart. Verse 4, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, that God has done this in you, that you're an epistle of Christ. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. We didn't do this to you. God did it to you through our ministering. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the Gentiles' new covenant. He doesn't say that. He just says, ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily, steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How would the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? And he goes on and on and on. Now, the point of reading more of the context there, is to get that phrase, New Covenant, in there. It's very clear what Paul's thinking about. Not on tablets of stone. He's thinking about that which was written on stone tablets. And he says, not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on stone tablets, but... Tablets of flesh, that is, heart. If you remember the Jeremiah prophecy and the Ezekiel prophecy, this is an echo of, I think, both those, at least both of those passages. Now, to drill down a little on verse 3, I'm going to make several observations. First of all, in the context, Paul is obviously talking about the new covenant as prophesied by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and elsewhere in the Old Testament. I think he's clearly uh, uh, um, talking about its fulfillment in the lives of the Corinthians. They are an epistle of Christ. Christ is the author by virtue of the spirit of Christ working in these people to make them the people of Christ under the inaugurated new covenant. Now, verse 6 is the clincher, at least for me, in part, not the only clincher. But one of the clinching arguments is that he uses the phrase, Uh, New Covenant in verse 6. That's why I read that for you. And the parallels with Jeremiah 33, I think, are also striking. I will put my law in their hearts. I will put it in their minds. John Calvin put it this way. He alludes to the promise that is recorded in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 concerning the grace of the new covenant. Paul says that this blessing was accomplished through means of his preaching. You know why Calvin would say that? Because ministered by us. What did Paul do when he went to Corinth? Preached the gospel. So the minister administers the word of God. And as that's going on and you hear the call of the gospel with your ears, um, the Lord is doing his invisible work, opening up the hearts of people by this divine cardiology, or card, Yeah. Cardiographic work, uh, heart work, uh, uh... in fulfillment of the promised new covenant, while the preacher is speaking externally and people are hearing, God is invisibly doing his work in the hearts of people. That's what's going on. And this is a... And uh, you're an epistle of Christ. This internal writing has an author, at least two here, uh, uh, you're an of Christ, written by the spirit of the living God, That's an interesting way to put it. The living God, as opposed to dead idols or uh, inanimate idols. Living God has other uses in Paul's writing, but I think it comes from the Old Testament, and it ultimately refers in the Old Testament to Yahweh. This is a work of Yahweh in the hearts of people. So he clearly has the new covenant in mind. A second observation: Christ is the author of this epistle written on the heart. The phrase "of Christ" is best understood as Christ authoring the epistle written on the heart. And part of the reason is is the Acts sixteen four and the Lord. I think it's the Lord Jesus opened up her heart. Uh, Paul spoke. Externally, with audible words, the Lord was opening up the heart. The Lord Jesus, according to his divine nature in heaven, was opening up the heart so that we can say this of Christ epistle means Christ is its author. And in this passage, Christ then authenticates Paul's ministry by doing the work only God can do in writing upon the souls of men. I think part of Paul's argument is this. Look, I didn't do this to you, and you didn't do it to yourself. All I did was I ministered the word of the gospel, and God was doing the work of opening hearts doing heart surgery on people by blessing his word, Christ speaking through it, the spirit making it effectual to the well-being of your souls. So in one sense, he's arguing from the effects wrought in them back to the cause. And included in that is the fact that God promised to do that to both Jew and Greek in the prophets of the Old Testament. A third observation on our text is this. Christ uses not ink but the Spirit of the living God to write on the hearts of men. Christ uses not ink, this is the language of Paul, but the Spirit of the living God to write on the hearts of men. Again, this is an internal work, so we can just back up a little and say, well, this is interesting uh, because a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people in here, I don't even know if there's anyone in here, but a lot of people out there think Christianity is... What is Christianity? Well, it's it's a religion where you're committed to an external law code. Christianity is doing certain things. Now, Christianity includes doing certain things, but do you want to say Christianity is doing certain things? So all you have to do is do certain things and you're a Christian. Or do you want to say that Christianity is called what it is because it's related to Jesus Christ who is a first? was a first-century rabbi, who was actually the incarnate son of God, who became man for us and for our salvation, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, who ascended for us, who's ruling and reigning for us, who's coming again for us. It's all about him, not about what I do. I think you want to say it the other way. This text is kind of, I think, highlighting that for us, this thing that they... By the way, the, the opponents of the Christians called them Christians at first, and then slowly but surely, the, the name stuck. But this thing we call Christianity is caused by God doing something in us that we cannot do and we cannot produce. Christ uses not ink, but the spirit of the living God to change hearts. And he does it through means... Ordinarily, through means, speaking the word to others. Uh, All of us who are in Christ uh, sat under the word. uh, Somebody shared it. We read it ourselves. But at some point, and you can't always go back to the point, right? At some, during, actually at some point, effectual calling occurred. But our consciousness of it isn't always clear. Uh, But at some point, God did something to you and in you, causing you to then relate to this thing we call the Bible way different than you did before. This is an internal work of the Spirit of God in the souls of men. A fourth observation is this. The tablets of stone refer to the uh, tablets upon which God originally wrote the Ten Commandments. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraven on stones, okay, tablets of stone, uh, reading this text, 2 Corinthians 3, with our scriptural lenses as broad as we can get them, all the way from Genesis 1 1 to Revelation 22. 22 or whatever, however many verses the last chapter of the Bible has. Reading with that kind of a lens, we realize Paul's using language and co- bringing up concepts that are should be within the consciousness of a good Bible reader. The tablets of stone refer to those tablets upon which God originally wrote the Ten Words or Ten Commandments. Fifth observation, the fleshly tablets that is the heart, refers to refer to the Corinthians themselves, upon which God acts in grace. So the external stones are referring us back to the tablets of stone, referring us back to the original stone tablets upon which God, and we could even say the subsequent ones, because Moses wrote Moses broke the first ones, but then God gave him a second set. We could say It's not just the stone tablets themselves. It's that which God wrote on the stone tablets that he's referring to. The tablets of flesh refer to the heart. So Christianity, then, is a religion that is produced, designed, effected by our efforts or God's grace. God's grace. Sixth observation uh, I think I have one more. There it is again, seven observations, the number of perfection. Therefore, these must be good arguments. Uh, the fifth, uh, sixth observation is unlike the writing on tablets of stone under the old co- or Mosaic covenant, which had as one of its functions the ministry of death, Paul says, The writing on the tablets of hearts under the new covenant is a ministry of the Spirit, which, Paul's language, gives life. Verses 6 and 7, I already wrote those. So there's an antithesis going on here. Not that nobody was saved ever before uh, the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. But he's just explaining the work of grace in hearts. There is this law, gospel, antithesis that's going on here as well in Paul's thinking. One function of the law is to kill us. Uh, Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said, we must preach the law most killingly. Sean likes that. Now, the problem is, if that's all we do, it's not a Christian sermon. Preach the law most killingly and then proclaim the gospel most freely. Now that that could be a Christian sermon. But here is this antithesis going on here, the work of law and grace considered distinctly the law, that is, the function of the Ten Commandments that convicts us of our violations of it. And then this gospel, New Covenant gospel element is here as well. And here's my seventh observation from our passage, and that is this. What Christ writes on the heart is the law of God as promised in Jeremiah 31, 33. I think if we have big Bible lenses, a wide lens Bible readers uh, here, if we don't, I'm trying to make you one, it's like, Well, yeah, I think, duh. He uses the phrase New Covenant. It's a work not caused by the minister of the word, but the ultimate author of the word himself, God, the Son, uh, writing not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God in hearts, transforming these people into believers in Christ, the forgiveness of their sins, the righteous standing with God, adoption, sanctification, justification, forgiveness, and ultimately glorification. It's all lavished upon them because of God's work for them in Christ and then the application of that work within them. And that includes the writing of the law, as promised in Jeremiah 31, 33, on the hearts of every single Christian, all 10 of them. This work of renovation makes us sensitive to the moral law of God. Does it make us sinless? No. Does it make us sensitive? Yes. Sometimes to the point of actually not fulfilling an unrighteous desire. Having an unrighteous desire, but not fulfilling it because we're checked within by the grace of God using this thing we call conscience. I was telling my wife on the way here, conscience almost seems like a, a separate person within us, huh? You know, the Puritans call it... Puritans called the conscience the domestic chaplain, the chaplain uh, that we haven't hired that lives within the house of our minds, hearts, souls, and preaches sermons at us. That conscience, whatever it is, that thing in us with the knowledge of the law of God functions more uh, powerfully and sensitively after we come to Christ than before we come to Christ. For some of us, conviction of sin was a heavy weight upon us in our conversion process. If you read um, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there's an extended, elongated uh, period of the conviction of sin. Um, But I just want to illustrate the fact that for all of us it came. Some with a heavy sense, uh, a burden of our guilt, that, and we didn 't understand the Gospel for a while that was that was me uh, i didn 't understand the Gospel for like three months after going to the second Protest, third Protestant building I ever went to in my life actually it wasn 't a Protestant building it was it was a public school, but a Protestant church was meeting there, and I was under conviction under conviction, under conviction. I felt terrible. Church made me feel worse every week that I went um, but after a time, I realized the gospel is the relief pill. I didn't mean that gospel, you know, that, the gospel. Maybe I did. The relief is not the two, take two tablets. Remember that? I walked in the gym one day at, back in Kentucky, and it said, for fast relief, take two tablets. And I had the first four commandments and the last six. I'm going... What in the world Christianity isn't moralism that doesn't give you fast relief I'm going to obey my way to the safe presence of God that's our plight not our the answer to our not our solution so this conviction of sin do you have to have the conviction of sin to believe in Christ Yes. To what degree? To the degree that I had it or you're lost. You know, that would be wrong, right? If I sat up here and preached my conversion and made it the standard, or somebody else's conversion, and made it the standard, uh, that would be wrong. Uh, this is one of the difficulties and potential disaster of reading Christian biographies, especially the Banner of Truth ones? Because how many Christian biographies are written? Hundreds, thousands probably? How many Christians have there existed throughout the history of the Word? Millions? Maybe billions? You don't write Christian biography Like, there's not going to be four biographies written about people in this room. There probably won't even be one. Why is that? Because the biographies that are published are of the greatest of the saints. And so you read a biography and go, if you're a Christian, that's how you'll be. Well, then there'd be biographies on all of us. So this conscience, this conviction of sin, this amen to the law of God, where does this come from? Ultimately, it comes from God working grace in us. So here, I have a quotation here. On this observation, this seventh one, what Christ writes on the heart is the law of God as promised in Jeremiah 31-33. Here's what one commentator says. At the end of the verse, verse 3, while furthering his argument, Paul varies the metaphor by saying this letter writing was carried out not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Here Paul leaves behind the contrast between the work of a scribe, using pen and ink and the work of an apostle ministering in the power of the Spirit, and introduces another contrast, that between writing on tablets of stone and on human hearts. This latter contrast is clearly an allusion to the prophetic description of the new covenant, see Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, under which God would write his law on human hearts. So I'm not the first one to interpret this passage this way, and I think he's he's right to say that, Colin Cruz, if you want to know who it is. It's important uh, to see in the text, and and that quote pointed it out, that Paul shifts the metaphor at the end of verse 3. He goes from what the Corinthians are to him in verse 2, our epistle written on our hearts, to what Christ did in the Corinthians to make them Paul's epistle. He, He... did something under the preaching of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians that now makes them Paul's epistle in one sense, but they are epistles ultimately of Christ. So Paul's ministry then is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. By the way, if you're a believer in Christ, your life is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You ever thought of that before? You're a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You say, well, I'm pretty important. Well, You're not in and of yourself important, um, but you are important. If you're a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, if you're a believer in the Jewish Messiah, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, you're a fulfillment of that which God said would take place under Christ through the prophets of Christ before the incarnation of Christ. So I guess you are important. We're all important as believers, but not because of ourselves, but... The grace of God within us. We boast in the Lord, not ourselves. So Paul's ministry is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and the movement in Paul's thought here is not from one law to no law. So no law would be antinomian. There are no laws for Christians. The movement is not from one law, the law written on stone tablets, to no law, or to a totally new law. But the same law from stone to heart. That's the movement, okay? That which was written on stone is now written on heart. That's the movement in his thought there. That's what we gotta get, because then we, if we identify all ten of the Ten Commandments, as that which God wrote on the stone tab- tablets, then we have to say somehow, some way, Christians are responsible to obey all ten of the Ten Commandments. Here's uh, from another author. I think the other author might be a, an Australian, a Presbyterian Australian. I'm not sure. He could be Anglican. I know this man was Anglican. He says this, it is evident that Paul has in mind the contrast between the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai and the establishment of the new covenant prophesied by Jeremiah. At Sinai, the law had been written by the finger of God, spirit of God, finger of God, on tablets of stone. Jeremiah 31, however, promises a law giving that is internal, namely the writing by God of his law in the very heart itself. It is most important to realize that this is the self-same law which was graven on tables of stone at Sinai that in this age of the new covenant is graven on the tablets of the human heart by the Holy Spirit. The gospel does not abrogate the law, but fulfills it. The Christian is still under solemn obligation to keep the law of God. But with this vital difference, that he now has the power, the power of Christ by his Holy Spirit, within himself to keep it. I will give you my spirit and cause you to obey my statutes. That's the the Ezekiel 36 text. The law, therefore, is neither evil nor obsolete, but as Paul says elsewhere, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good, Romans 7, 12. Nor is the law opposed to love. On the contrary, love of God and love of one's neighbor are the sum of the law. We'll deal with that in the next sermon. As our Lord himself taught, love, the apostle affirms, is precisely the fulfillment of the law. I just want to love Jesus. You know what Paul would say? Then obey the commandments. That's Romans 13, 8 through 10. We're going to look at that text in a minute. So, or in an hour. So Paul's understanding of the law of God written on the heart under the new covenant from 2 Corinthians 3, 3, I think now becomes clear. That law is the Ten Commandments, the fundamental basic law of the Old Covenant and Testament, that which God wrote on stone tablets. Now, the function of the Ten Commandments under the New Covenant for believers in Christ is similar to their function under the Old. They they still function as the fundamental pattern for righteous living. I think we instinctually kind of examine ourselves that way, and that's fine. But 2 Corinthians, so that 2 Corinthians 3.3 3 is one New Testament text which clearly teaches the abiding validity of all ten of the Ten Commandments somehow, some way, for Christians in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So that's my argument from 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, and it's less than 45 minutes. I, I never cease to amaze myself, how self-controlled I can be. So this means I either we get to finish way early or I get to ad-lib based on what I said. So in order to justify my paycheck, I think I need to speak some more. We need to think about this. So really, if, if I was right, and it's not just me, okay? I didn't I come up with this exposition, this interpretation on my own one day, Um I I read and studied the Bible and then I read and studied good Bible teachers and uh, theologians all throughout the history of the church and I I saw this thread of of them citing Jeremiah 31 2 Corinthians 3 uh in their arguments for the perpetuity of the entirety of the Decalogue under the New Covenant. When I first thought of that, I would have pushed back against it because I was trained in a certain theological context. Then when I got out of that and started studying on my own um, and got the right materials to read, I realized, oh, people have been saying this for a long time, that which I used to deny. Namely, all ten of the Ten Commandments somehow, some way, have application in the Christian life. Now, if you're following me, you've been in Christ for a while. You realize what I'm getting at. I'm going to argue even the fourth word is ours, and we should be glad for it. And we got to understand it. Some people say, "Well, does it? Why? Why? Why don't we make it on the seventh day?" Then, well, I'll argue worship looks different, and the day is different this side of the resurrection of Christ. And I'll give you the arguments for that, and. It, all Christians believe that. Well, most Christians believe that. There are some seventh-day Christians in our day that are probably true believers who I think are wrong about the day for, for public worship. So I'll argue that the fourth commandment, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, looks different in its application based on Redemptive historical realities wrought by God through Christ, namely the resurrection of the Son of God on the first day, the first day of the new creation, when he ceased his redemptive work and when he entered into rest, as Paul, the author of Hebrews, clearly tells us in Hebrews chapter 4. But I also argue this, because some people struggle with that. Well, it looks different than it's not the same commandment. Does the second commandment look different in application this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ does it look different than it looked in under the Mosaic Covenant? Yes, the second commandment. Um, it's a good commandment. Uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol, which if we want to uh, um, say it in different words, you shall worship God the way he has revealed himself to be worshiped. And so... For public worship under the older Mosaic covenant, the application of the second commandment looked one way. Right? Does it look the same way for believers in Christ after the resurrection of the Son of God? No, it looks it looks different. It's still the second commandment, my little children. Keep yourselves from idols. First John chapter five. Matter of fact, there was idolatry, flee idolatry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Somebody wants to say, well, the second commandment's not uh, applicable for Christians. They assume it is. Paul does it, John does it, others do it. Uh, Covetousness, which is idolatry, second commandment, okay? But the application of it in terms of what public worship looks like after the resurrection, is certainly way different than the older Mosaic economy. We could even say before the Mosaic covenant comes in, the the application, the the, the external doing uh, of the second commandment looked different than it did when the Mosaic law came in. Correct? Correct. So the commandment, the essence of it, worship God as he requires in his word, can remain the same throughout Old and New Testament. The look of it, the application of it, can change based on God's revelation of His will for His people. Matter of fact, Jesus in John chapter 4 predicted the alteration of public worship with the woman at the well. And it's a wonderful text, it's so wonderful. Hear these words. John chapter 4, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, uh, that is, uh, a centralized place of worship. The hour is coming when I'm going to bust that up, is what he's basically say, saying. Uh, at that time, there were centralized worship was in Jerusalem at the temple, uh, uh, the, And then our Lord says, you worship what you do not know, we know what we worship for salvation of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship God as spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, here's what's going on here. Christ is announcing that this hour that is coming is really soon to come. And he's going to destroy the te- destroy the temple in AD 70, which he did. Uh, he's also going to institute himself as the center of worship, destroy this temple. His, and I will raise it up in three days, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So there's a physical temple that's the center of public worship back then, and it gets... Uh, prophesied by Jesus in various places in the Gospels to be destroyed by him, AD 70. There's a physical temple, his own body that gets destroyed. He raises it, is it up. He raises it up. And then those connected to him are called his body. And they are the corporate people of God called to worship God on the first day of the week according to the word of God this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ. So there you have the application of the second commandment looking way different in terms of public worship. So could it be for uh, the fourth commandment as well? Could it be for other commandments? Could well be. We'll have to explore that when we get there. So I am finished now. I am going to say this. Second Corinthians was a letter written by an apostle of Christ to the people of Christ in a certain geographic place who had their unique problems and issues and all that stuff. Uh, But they were brothers and sisters in Christ. They, like most of us here, heard something, not merely with the ear, but this, this internal light was turned on, shone in our hearts. And we saw, we understood things. We knew things then unlike we knew things before. We we were caused to see something good and glorious in a bloody, beaten, mocked-upon, scoffed-at Savior called Jesus. We saw in him our only hope of life and light and eternity and forgiveness and righteousness. And we saw all those things, not because we're smarter than anybody else, Um, If you haven't figured it out, there are some Christians that ain't very smart at all. It's not our smarts. As a matter of fact, it's nothing in us. It's, you know, the, the gospel was ministered to us. Somebody served it and God made it do its work in us. It's a God thing. So Paul's writing to these people saying a God thing happened. God did something to you, and it's in agreement with that which God said he would do back in the prophets. He did it through my ministering, but he is the one who did it. He should get praise, not others, fake apostles, or even me. Your boast shouldn't be in any men, any minister. It should be in the Lord. That's what he told them in 1 Corinthians. So if you're here, maybe you're hearing this voice. Um, we just sang about it. May I hear your voice from the skies through the minister preaching in the hymn 313? It was a wonderful. I said, you should should pray that. You know what they're getting at there? They're getting at what Paul talked about in Ephesians. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. That's Ephesians 2.17. Can you hear Isaiah 59 there? If you can't, I'm telling you, that's what you're hearing. And if some versions have some of the words capitalized there, it's because Paul's quoting aspects of Isaiah. I think it's 59. You Gentile Ephesians and some Jews who were there, he, Christ, came and preached peace to you. Now, Jesus in the flesh never went there. But he says... He, referring back to the Lord who secured our redemption, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and those who are near. Christ preached the gospel to Jews and Gentiles, not during his state of humiliation between his, his birth and uh, death, but after his resurrection, his exaltation and ascension into heaven, he sent ministers. And as the ministers... Acts chapter 19, Paul and others, were ministering, serving the word about Jesus to sinners by virtue of his divine nature, Christ caused epistles to be written, to be born by virtue of his spirit, writing not with ink but the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of hearts. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ And second to that, uh, what God does with the message about Christ in our souls. With the blessing of God, we get convicted of our sin. We realize it's, it's way worse than I thought. Okay? That's important. It's way, it's way worse than I thought. And the older you get in Christ, the more you understand the holiness and the depth and the breadth of the law of God. You go... Sometimes you go, stop, that's, you're already, you've preached the law most killingly, please stop and give me some, some balm, give me some reprise, give me some good news. And that's the, the, the gospel is what God has done, and then God brings that and he does it. He applies the fruits, the benefits of that redemptive work so long ago. He brings it to our hearts with power. And it's not like you hear an audible voice. Um, but the effects of grace in the heart are, one is conviction of sin. I, I, I got to deal with this. And, and another is also conviction that Christ and Christ alone is sufficient to deal with my sins. Well, may, may the Lord... Bless His Word, and um, we're going to sing a hymn in response. After I pray, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for Second Corinthians chapter three, the apostolic indication that that promise of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and elsewhere in the Old Testament found targets in brothers and sisters way back in ancient. Greece, in Corinth, um, a city much like our own uh, culture in which we live in. But you, by your grace, uh, cause people to hear about Christ and then open up the hearts of those same people, by your grace, to understand the gospel, to run from our sins and guilt or run with our sins and guilt to Christ, to be cleansed. So thank you for your written word, and we ask that you would help us to understand these things and and, um, be better for it, to love you more, to love our neighbor better, to understand the law and the gospel better, to be able to speak as ministers and servants of the scriptures in our private uh, vocations to others as you give opportunity. Now help us to respond singing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.